Hello and welcome to Corsair Wigs with me, Evelyn McCleverty, and Irish Rule of Law International on the show this month. You can't turn your back. It's just not possible. That's Binta Mansare, a human rights activist from Sierra Leone. The world should hear these stories. Binta has served on the special court for Sierra Leone since the beginning, which was set up to address the crimes committed in the country during its brutal civil war. Of course, diamonds played a significant role. Binta is registrar of the court, which is now in residual status. But before that, she worked in a very special position the court had. As its outreach coordinator, she liaised with communities, with the victims and survivors of the conflict, in which 50,000 people were killed. To talk to a population about the rights of the accused, when they've suffered so much harm from the accused. Binta has no official training in law and she holds hugely insightful thoughts. Observations on where the diamond-rich country is at now. Adults don't want anything that is called war because of what they've gone through. A note to our listeners, this episode does contain some graphic details of killings and atrocities committed during the war, which have been described as the worst we have seen anywhere in the world. Binta started our conversation by describing how she ended up working on the court, which was after some time with an NGO, when Binta was liaising with boys and girls and women while the war was ongoing. Decades ago, if... Anyone had told me I'd be working on conflicts and post-conflict issues, I would not believe it because I never set out to work on conflict and post-conflict issues. But as life has taught me, there are many pathways to a career. So in my case, I actually studied French initially, but then because of the war in Sierra Leone, uh, there was an NGO that was set up, Campaign for Good Governance. So uh, the lady who actually established that organization, Zaina Bangura, whom I knew, invited me to work with her. At that time, she didn't have money uh, to pay for a position. So I volunteered. I was asked to work as human rights officer and gender officer. So when I was working as human rights officer, I had the opportunity to work with women who were coming to the Campaign for Good Governance who had been sexually abused by rebels, who had suffered such horrific human rights abuses. And I cannot even explain enough my shock at hearing those stories because I had no idea, you know, what the impact of war was on women. So I started going into camps, uh, the internally displaced camps, uh, communities, and also refugee camps and interim care centers to talk with the war affected there, the women and children. Uh, The stories I heard, it was just one after the other, one horrific story of murder, of gang raping, of sexual slavery, sexual assault, sexual violence of the worst kind. So this was one after the other, hearing people You know, women, girls of all ages, adolescents, boys and girls. And we interviewed up to 700. Uh, That was what had a significant impact on me. And I just felt a profound sense of moral obligation to do something about it. And that's how I pursued the course of accountability and justice and working on conflict and post-conflict issues. When you were working with the NGO, when you had that opportunity, you weren't living in Sierra Leone at the time. I was back and forth, but I would come and 
work with the NGO for as long as it was necessary. Then when the conflict really raged again, you know, I would leave and then go back. But it was always leaving and going back. And and doing the research in the country during the civil war. So so the civil war began in 91, lasted for 11 years, was sparked by various grievances among people in the country at the time. A rebel group called the Revolutionary United Front was formed and it tried to overthrow the then government, which has been described by some as a dictatorship. The war itself was described by uh, Human Rights Watch, for one, as, quote unquote, the worst we have seen anywhere in the world. And it was marked by amputations, mass killings, rape, as you said, the use of child soldiers uh, by both militia and government forces, serious and incomprehensible violence. And this is set against a backdrop, which you'll know all too well, of a very poor country, yet rich in natural resources, namely diamonds. And the financing of the war, it seems, was helped by the selling by rebel and government troops of the diamonds to international buyers. Binta, this is my brief take on a much more complex situation that had horrific consequences and and enduring psychosocial problems. I know you weren't living in the country. You were based in New York at the time the civil war started. But you were back and forth. Can you describe the the social, political, economic landscape in the country prior to the war and the role you believe diamonds played in it? Of course, diamonds played a significant role in the war. When the rebels started, they hurriedly made their way to Connor district in the east of the country, which was really the main diamond mining area in Sierra Leone. It's known for that. And they captured that district. The point I'm trying to make to show the value of diamonds. They were mining diamonds and those financing their war were allowed to mine diamonds. But the rest of the country, in fact, they chased out the inhabitants of Akona through killings, abductions and burning their homes. As all of us know, people trying to exploit the natural resources of the country take advantage of chaos and lawlessness that war brings. So that was the role that Diamond played, you know, in financing the war, but also fueling the war. Because, as I say, some wanted the Diamonds to enrich themselves. But the fundamental causes of the war, bad governance in a nutshell, that is political intimidation, injustice, youth, marginalization, and nepotism. These are just some of it. But in real terms, what does that mean? It means civil liberties were taken away. The freedom of speech, freedom of expression were curtailed. The freedom of the press was non-existent because people were afraid to speak their mind. Sierra Leoneans knew something was wrong. So all of the avenues available to the citizens to express their grievances, to hold the, uh, the government and officials accountable, those were just closed. Because of all that frustration, it was a build-up of all of this frustration. And yet you had a minority in the country who were enriching themselves. The majority were, were silent and being deprived and an over-centralized one-party rule. So the people who were able to say something were the students. But even then, they had to do it by organizing demonstrations and the government would come down hard on students again to crush any dissent. So it was a build-up of all of these socio-economic and political 
scenario that actually led to the war. And there were diamonds, you know, which people used to finance the war, but also to enrich themselves. So it's a very complex situation, as you said. The causes are very complex. I'm just trying to uh, summarize it here. But more importantly, if somebody were to ask me, what's one critical element? I would say it's the judiciary. People lost faith completely in the judiciary because the judiciary at that time was politicized. So it wasn't independent? At all. It was not. In 2002, the the Special Court for Sierra Leone, a UN-backed hybrid court, a court staffed by people from Sierra Leone and the international community, was set up to address the crimes committed in the country during the Civil War period. It was mandated with the prosecution of those who bore the greatest responsibility since November 30th, 1996. In 2003, you joined the court as outreach coordinator, a role you've been lauded for. Can you tell us about the job? It is about setting the vision and the mission of the program itself. Go into communities, serve as a link between the court and the affected population. And for us, it was the whole country. That was the job of the outreach coordinator, meaning the outreach coordinator herself has to do it. It was extremely important because at that time, there were no agreed understanding of what outreach was. Uh, But we established it and defined it as a two-way communication to engage with the people of Sierra Leone. And the word engagement is extremely important. And why is it important? It's important because it has to be sustained. It has to be ongoing. It means the process of transitional justice goes on and it can be long. And that means that The court's operations must be communicated to the people of Sierra Leone at every stage and then allow the people of Sierra Leone to comment on it, to ask questions, whether they approve of what the court is doing, to compliment the court, to criticize the court even, uh, to express their views about the mandate of the court. We established interagency meetings with civil society organizations. We built an extensive grassroots network with community-based organizations all over the country. Uh, We set up town hall meetings, radio talk show programs in communities, and we used community radio programs. We went into schools and organized debates and quizzes about the mandates and uh, crimes that the court was prosecuting. It also means that we had video summaries of the trials that we took into the communities to let the communities see what justice was like and that it was not a jungle justice. It also means talking about victims' rights to justice, but in the context of the rights of the accused. It was not easy to talk to a population about the rights of the accused when they've suffered so much harm from the accused. And that's why outreach was extremely important, because at the initial stages, there was already a perception of justice, meaning that justice was for the rich. Justice could be bought. Justice was not fair. They have to see that it was different. And how did we do it? We explained how the court works. But more importantly, people were able to see civil society organizations, community-based organizations, they were able to witness, because the court was based in the country, 
where the crimes took place. So they had the opportunity to come and witness firsthand how justice was done. That the court listened to the victims and also listened to the accused persons yeah, as they were uh, giving their own defense. So, so this kind of helped you know, to build trust again in the court. Given the networks that you had established with grassroots communities and people from your previous work with the NGO, I assume that this is why you felt, you know, you were quite a good fit for this role. You'd already established this level of trust. But I, I just believe that um, given the experience of working with both uh, ex-combatants and victims, I was in a better position to define the vision of outreach as all-inclusive. And what does that mean? It means it serves both all organs of the court. It serves the prosecutor, the defence and the the chambers. It it cannot be seen to be promoting any particular organ's interest and to design programmes that did not marginalise anyone. At first it was difficult because even the outreach officers were working, many of them were, were victims. All of us suffered during the war one way or the other. So it was very hard at the beginning when the court started operations to say to them, you have to be objective in what you're saying. You would have had direct contact with the people. This was core to the programme. The people most impacted by the civil conflict. Can you give us some insight into the atrocities that were committed against the people and by the people? What what you heard? Very, very horrific. Uh, Some of those stories uh, I still carry. Too horrific to forget, you know, to ever forget about those. A note for our listeners here. The scenes that Binta is about to describe, as we've outlined in our introduction, are very graphic. Details of physical harm and the killing of children. This segment lasts about one minute. So for those of you who would rather not listen to the following, jump ahead 60 seconds. We'll now resume Binta's conversation. How can you explain rebels betting on the sex of a pregnant woman? and then slitting the pregnant woman's uh, stomach just to see who won, whether the pregnant woman was carrying a boy or a girl. So how, how, how can anyone explain that? How can anyone explain a mother who just had a newborn baby abducted by the rebels and the baby was crying? They took the baby, put the baby in a mortar, and gave the, the mother a pestle and say, you need to pound this baby to death because we don't want the screaming. I mean, how can anyone explain that? So those are some of the atrocities uh, that were communicated to me, the stories that I heard, pain and suffering in their eyes. And here you're not reading these stories in a book. You're just sitting with face to face with those who suffered it. Uh, sometimes even experiencing secondary trauma just by hearing those stories. Then some women, those who suffered fistula, who are experiencing you know, stigma in their communities because of that. Because no man needs them anymore. Nobody wants them anymore. They tell that story because of the trauma that they experience. So these are some of the stories that we hear. And again, it relates to what I was saying. If one has been privy 
to all these stories. You can't turn your back on them. It's just not possible. Yeah, just absolutely horrific, the violence and um, the impact that that's had on, on society. You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from Irish Rule of Law International and me, Evelyn McCleverty. Our guest this month is Binta Mansare, the Registrar of the Residual Special Court for Sierra Leone. A little about this podcast. It's funded by Irish Aid and brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, an NGO that uses the rule of law to tackle global injustice. You can find out about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.ie. Back now to our conversation with this month's guest, Binta Mansare, who talks to us about homeless adults in the country, the then young people who were recruited and abducted to fight in conflict in Sierra Leone. Roughly 10,000 to 14,000 child soldiers fought between 91 and 2002. That was the length of the Civil War. Children fought on both sides of the conflict. Nearly half of the the Revolutionary United Front was comprised of children and a quarter of the governmental armed forces consisted of children aged between 8 and 14, according to, to some sources. So these were innocent people, children who were abducted and forcibly recruited to fight and who then became the perpetrators of the violence. And this is a hugely complex and sad issue with these people often experiencing a, a level of double victimization, Binta. And I know this is something you're very interested in and most of your work centres on this. Can you describe the trauma that these people have experienced and continue to experience today? Yes, um, to date, some people see these ch- children as really perpetrators and only perpetrators. Uh, after the children have been demobilised, they would be taken to an interim care centre, you know, where they wait until they are reintegrated. So I had the opportunity of talking to these adolescents, boys and girls, both in interim care centres, but also in communities. And then I realised that, yes, they were perceived as perpetrators, but they were also victims because all they wanted, all they talked about in my meetings with them, and this was not a one-day meeting, it was meeting, you know, that spanned over, you know, some time. What they were worried about was their parents. They were sad about not being able to go to school. They would explain how they were abducted and drugged and given weapons to fight. It is true that they killed, they committed atrocities, they raped, they burnt homes. They did all the bad things that you can think of in a war. But at the same time, these were kids who were abducted and drugged to commit those crimes. How should society see them as perpetrators who must be treated as perpetrators or perpetrators who need to be rehabilitated? And in the course of rehabilitation, how do you address the trauma and their experiences? And that is where I think society is failing these kids, the child soldiers. The ones I worked with in Sierra Leone, in as much as they wanted to go back to their communities and their parents, the communities and parents didn't want them. We tried to intervene, and some would say to me, Binta, these are the people who burnt our houses. They are the ones who did all these bad, terrible things. They are the ones who committed rape. Who would want those kids to come back to the society? And that was an eye-opener for me too, because before I spoke to them, I don't think I would have seen them as victims. When I spoke to them and compared what they were telling me with what 
victims, uh, adolescent victims in these place camps were saying it was no different. They wanted the same things. They wanted the opportunity to go to school. They wanted to work and, you know, have their livelihoods. Some wanted to care for their parents. So then I realized that these people are also victims and uh, they should be advocated for. The world should hear these stories. And as a result, we're talking about trauma. Today, most of them are young adults, no jobs. They continue to do drugs to be able to cope being a social outcast. They cannot feed themselves. Some of them get involved in petty crimes. Some of them are beggars. So this is what is going on. It is not good for society. It's not good for the country. And it's not good for international justice as well. What does the shape of rehabilitation of child soldiers, what does that even look like? It was supposed to be providing counselling services. Some counselling services were provided, but this is not an event. It is not. It has to be institutionalised. Society has to recognise it and then establish institutions that would be supported over a period of time. First of all, to identify the trauma in young people and address it. Today, if you see, they are quick to settle scores violently. This is all the aftermath of what they've gone through. Because let's say somebody was abducted when they were 10 years old, and they spent 11 years in the bush fighting. All they know is violence, is how to fight. Their formative years have been you know, just uh, shaped by killings and drugs and everything. So when they are demobilized and enter society, if this is not addressed in a meaningful way, then you're having young adults who would continue living the same life of petty crimes, violence, you know, and become a threat to, to peace in the country. And is that what's happening? To a large extent, yes. We do have the marginalized youth. One can see it or one cannot see it because sometimes when you acknowledge the existence of a problem it comes with the obligation to do something about it. Do you believe that the international justice community have failed these now young adults then children? No not the international justice community because their mandate is limited to delivering justice and limited form of justice in that they hold those who bear the greatest responsibility for the atrocities committed. But has society failed these kids? Yes. Because as somebody said to me, they are no bad kids, they are just bad adults. Wherever you see bad kids, it means you have bad adults. That's a simplistic way of seeing it. But I'm just trying to say the responsibility that society has towards these kids. They should be employed. They're so full of energy and they want to be useful to society. They want jobs. If they don't have it and society doesn't accept them, then they do drugs, which is what is happening. And there's probably a dependency on drugs anyway, having been introduced to, to drugs at quite a young age and been to going back to the court because that's another podcast, really, what to do about child soldiers who are now adults and how to best rehabilitate them, actually. But going back to your work with the um, Special Court for Sierra Leone, from July 2007 to, to February 2010, you were Deputy Register of the Court. 
taking over as register from 2010 to 2013. What did you do with the outreach program during this time? Was it was it still a priority? Outreach is going on, even as I speak to you. It's a priority than if it was even during the Special Court for Sierra Leone's existence. The reason being, we have a 30-year-olds, a 25-year-olds, some of whom were not born when the war started. Some are too young. They were too young to remember the war and its devastation. So you have this generation of Sierra Leoneans, ignorant of the war, and to a large extent, taking peace for granted. And some of them don't even believe the stories that their parents are telling them. Last year, I had a focus group of women, 12 women, talking about the Peace Museum. And then one of the women in the focus group was just crying, telling us the story of her sadness about the fact that her 12 and 14-year-olds do not believe her when she tells them how her elder sister was killed. And the way her eldest... Again here, the following descriptions are violently graphic in nature and include details of the killing of a child. Please jump forward 20 seconds if you'd rather not listen. We'll now go back to our conversation with Binta. She was pregnant. They were running away when the rebels invaded their village and then they met the rebels. And the rebels bet on the sex of the fetus and just slit her stomach open. She died in the process. So she said to me, whenever she explains to her sons, the 12 and 14-year-old, the 12-year-old says, oh, mommy, you like making up terrible stories. The other one said, mom, that's why I don't like coming near you because you you, you just bring up these witchcraft stories because they don't believe. So she asked whether she could bring her sons to the Peace Museum so that they would tour the museum and then we would also explain to her sons because they don't believe her. So the point I'm trying to make is today you need outreach, but for a different reason, to let the young generation know and understand that there was a war and that all these terrible stories that is too horrific for them to to believe actually happened in the country. And they can see pictures of that. We can see factual information about that. And we continue the work. Was it not very obvious for these children who disbelieve their parents that, you know, given the, the, the psychological impact of people who are now on the streets, is it not obvious to them that something terrible had taken place within the country? You know, in a country of extreme poverty, for children, people on the streets, it's just that they don't have opportunity. They are poor. And the war is not taught in schools in any meaningful way. They started introducing it to schools. It's very limited. And we see our role as really complementing what the schools are doing. So is this a political decision that was taken? I would not say a political decision was taken not to teach it. But perhaps the process is too slow for it to be fully taught in all schools. The adults don't want anything that is called war because of what they've gone through. The children don't understand it. In 2012, the former president of neighbouring Liberia, Charles Taylor, who was a sitting head of state at the time, was sentenced by the Special Court for Sierra Leone for aiding and abetting war crimes and crimes against humanity. He remains in prison until this day following an unsuccessful appeal. 
given your awareness from the outset of the potential impunity gap, and this is something that you'd mentioned earlier, given the narrow mandate of the court in holding those most responsible for the crimes accountable and only from a specific period, was there a sense, and you're saying now that people don't even want to know about the war, but was there a sense then from victims, survivors, even now, that justice was in fact done? That's, that's a very interesting question, because when the court started, there was a sense of injustice felt by the people of Sierra Leone because the mandate of special court was very limited to those who bear the greatest responsibility. And that meant that only 13 persons were indicted. So the people didn't quite understand why that was the case. And that's where outreach was very important because in our outreach events and outreach programs in all the communities, we try to help people understand the link between those who bear the greatest responsibility and the foot soldiers or the middle-level commanders who committed the crimes. And why didn't people understand? Because for the woman in the community, the person who bears the greatest responsibility is the neighbor who raped and killed her loved ones. So it was very hard for them to relate that experience to those who bear the greatest responsibility, who are more or less the warlords, the leaders. So we had to take them through the process and explain to them that, listen, those who bear the greatest responsibility, they are the people who started the war, who financed the war, who thought of the war, who provided the weapons, who gave the command. And if you didn't have these people, you would not have the foot soldiers at the rank and file who committed these crimes. And that was done through a process of engagement. It was not telling them. It was discussing with them over time to let them understand and let them ask questions. And you respond to those questions. Uh, questions like what is happening to the people here and why were the perpetrators in the community not indicted. You need to explain to them the limitations of international justice. Mm. I read somewhere that a judge who had been asked to review the, the Special Court for Sierra Leone had said that the outreach programme was in fact the, the crown jewel. Um, Binta, thank you for your time today. It was really lovely to talk to you and to hear about your work. Thank you, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me on your show. Binta Mansare there. If you want to hear other voices on the civil war in Sierra Leone, you can listen to some earlier episodes of this podcast, namely Shireen Fisher and Teresa Doherty. That's it for the programme this month. Thanks as always to our funders, Irish Aid. From me, Evelyn McCleverty and Irish Rule of Law International, take good care.